Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode 6. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to be celebrating the end of 2016 by having a short review of some of the biggest and most exciting highlights of the year, at least according to Chris and I. Nice. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Well, welcome back to episode six. Chris and I were just trying to figure out what we wanted to do to wrap up 2016 uh, and decided, you know, let's let's think about what happened this year. Let's kind of do a quick review episode and think about all the exciting things, big or small that happened in archaeology and kind of come up with our own best and worst of 2016 lists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you follow Facebook, as all of us do, um, it seems like everyone is decrying this year as a truly horrific year. <laughs> so surely there's some good things that came out of this, um, especially in archaeology, where we're always making new discoveries and everyone knows discoveries are exciting. Yeah, and I don't know about you, Chris, but I am a practicing optimist <laughs> in that it takes know, a lot of practice. Gotta be, it, it really does. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a work. It's a work in practice. Um, but, you know, I, even things like so early this year, Prince died, hugely tragic for all of us. Mm-hmm. And my husband is from a suburb near Chan, or Ch- Chanhassen where his home and studio were. So we went and we visited and looked at the memorial wall that extends around it. And I realized that as a material culturalist, it was fascinating. It was the most amazing memorial I've ever been to. And to see what material culture choices people made, because people just left things Mm -hmm. along the fence to his property. And, you know, it it was hugely varied from, I have something purple in my car, I'm going to stick it to the fence, to carefully thought out homages. You know, the T-shirt people wore to their first Prince concert with why they put it there written on a note, sealed in a plastic bag, pinned to the fence, Mm -hmm. um, paintings that people had done. And when we as archaeologists, when I as an archaeologist see these sorts of things, it helps me think about what I see archaeologically. And so I became, came to realize that everything that we see in our current context has these kind of potential ripple effects and ways that they can help us understand archaeological records. And so even these horrible events in a weird way have archaeological significance. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just, Chris and I have been playing around and we started out by looking at all of the lists, all the top 10 lists that come out at the end of the year or top 20 or top five and thinking about why are these things picked for lists? Right. How do we come up with these silly lists and what do they really mean and why do they matter? Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think I, I really have to comment on what you said about the, uh, the stuff left outside of princes. Um, 
compound there because uh, it made me think about something, which which really factors into this conversation we're about to have on on the list that are out there. But like you said, you know, thinking about material culture and, and these things that people left along the fence are things that were not important to Prince. Like, I mean, I'm sure if he were alive and people had made that sort of memorial, he'd have been very moved and very touched by it. But these were things that were important to the people leaving them that made them think about how they felt about him and the impact he had on their lives, right? So it, it kind of, it really opens up to discussion through the centuries how burial, um, really burial grave goods have have changed. Um, and, and if they've changed at all, because I know some of the things on the list, the popular lists out there have to do with um, prominent burials that were found and then the grave goods associated with those burials. But I feel like we always just kind of default to saying whatever was found with a person defines them as a person and defines who they were in life because, you know, uh, all these things were, were associated with them, but it really could be that that's what was important to their family members and the community members that are honoring them by dropping these things in these graves, just like we do today with Prince, you know, like they're being honored in death, the way people remembered them in life and not necessarily their own things that they're being buried with. I think the one caveat to that is like, emperors and and you know egyptian pharaohs they're always buried with their own things because they have time to plan for that <laughs> so they're like you will carve me 700 terracotta soldiers or whatever the heck it was because that's what i want to be buried with um but the common person or you know smaller smaller groups of people i i it, it really brings into question how we interpret that kind of stuff but um i don't know just something to think about which is the whole reason to have these lists i feel like is so we can have stuff to think about so like April said, you know, we both looked at a whole bunch of 2016, you know, greatest uh, greatest discoveries or finds in archaeology for 2016 or whatever they call it. And, you know, we were talking before the show here. It feels like to me that that a lot of these are really just based on, you know, phenomenal discoveries and really something I've talked about on other shows and I think on this show is it all ends up highlighting the goods, the archaeology, the, 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 the artifacts. Um, it always ends up highlighting the artifacts. And a site can actually be really amazing and have no artifacts. <laughs> you know, it can be, it can tell you a lot and it can tell you a, a whole bunch about it and really not have that big of a material culture or something like that. Just the simple fact that it exists alone with some features could be a really profound thing for the story of that area and, and what we know of that area. And the fact that something is there at all might be the the story that's there, regardless of what you find, you know, at the site. So I think that's one reason I wanted to do this episode was uh, to focus on some of the things that I think had the greatest impact on archaeology, whether from a regulatory standpoint or from a, um, you know, from a, uh, from a different perspective, but not just the material culture of things that were found, because lots of great things are found. Um, and that, that also leads into a discussion of, of what's important, which April, I know you've talked about before. How do you decide? How do you decide what's important? We talked about that with the whole 50 year rule thing. Right. And I, I think it comes down to, to what is your audience? Who are you trying to reach and talk to? Because if you are a mainline mainstream newspaper, mm -hmm. then you want these sensationalist discoveries. Like, you know, I will say that one of my favorite things that came out this year was the identify and identification of a pair of mummified legs is probably those of Queen Nefertiti. <laughs> right. Um, because it plays into my childhood dreams and fantasies about ancient Egypt mm -hmm. and my own, you know, kind of knowledge base on a subject that I'm not an expert in. And so there's value in those kinds of articles and those kinds of 
top discoveries because they pull people in. They pull people into archaeology. They make people excited about it. But let's be honest, it's really cool and exciting. But I'm not sure that those knees really change our understanding <laughs> of the past. Yeah. Um, and so in another way, that's really a totally minor discovery based on cool new analyses that they were able to do versus some relatively unreported site because, you know, what they found really isn't incredibly groundbreaking, but it changes the history of the story of an area or our general understanding of how past humans approach something like environmental change, mm -hmm. where it's really complex. It's hard to sum that up into a headline that's going to get readers um, yeah. or into something catchy, even for a magazine like Science. Right. And, you know, part of the, I don't know, one of the things that really made me think about this too was just a few months ago, I'm working currently on this small survey project. It's a linear survey of a, of a historic um, uh, immigration route through Nevada that eventually goes, well, it doesn't start in Nevada, but it starts further east and then through Nevada and then up into um, Oregon called the Applegate Trail. And, you know, just doing this metal detector survey on some small sections of this trail, um, at one point we found, which I'll tell you, were really hard to find, even with the metal detector, and just kind of moving these little piles of dirt around, trying to figure out, where the heck is this little thing? I can hear it. But we found two little musket balls that were right next to each other. And um, finding those musket balls, man, I just almost couldn't think about anything else for the rest of the day doing survey. Um, because the story those musket balls tells... I don't know what that story is. If we excavated there, we might find some other evidence. But there was a lot of um, obviously they were shooting animals whenever they could to uh, for food, and so the fact that those musket balls were actually right in the trail told me one of two things: it was either they shot some animals and brought them back to the camp, which they, the wagons don't really leave the trail when they stop for the day. Um, they're not four wheel drive vehicles. They're they're like 16 wheel drive vehicles because of all the mules or horses. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's uh, I, the horsepower was pretty low, though. I'll tell you that. Um, but no. So these musket balls told me two things. One, they brought they brought food back that they processed. And then, you know, they just kind of fell out or decayed with whatever was left of the animal. And then that's where they were left. Right. Or something far more sinister. They were attacked by Native Americans. They were attacked by another group of non-Native Americans. Something like that. But either way, on that spot, something really important happened to a very specific group of people. Either they were fed, which was really important in that area of the Black Rock Desert, which is, you know, didn't always happen. Or, you know, something really tragic happened. And just those two little things told that huge story. But is the story the musket balls or is the story the story? You know what I mean? The story of the Applegate Trail. And and a lot of the lists that we have out there would tell you that the story is the musket balls and then not really go much further than that. So I think that's kind of what we focused on for some of the things that we want to talk about. Yeah, just trying to figure out on whose grounds is it important and what does it really teach us? What does it help us understand? Or how does it change broader perceptions of archaeology too? Mm -hmm. um, and kind of change the narratives that we can all engage in and the way that we can talk to people um, about archaeology or get people excited. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest conversation starters in archaeology, at least in the United States, and I'm only saying that because I don't have a perspective from outside of the United States, but I know the news made it out there at least through social media. 
was about the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, I mean, I could ask, and I did ask family at uh, at Thanksgiving. I was like, oh, did you hear about such and such archaeological find in, you know, Sweden? And they're like, no, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> of course you didn't. <laughs> so, but do you know anything about the Dakota Access Pipeline? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's the one where the Native Americans are pissed about something, right? And I'm like, okay, well, that's a start. Um, but at least you've at least you've heard about it. And I think... I think as far as the perception, like you said, April, the perception of archaeology, um, at least in this country, uh, you know, I, I don't even know how many people really understand that archaeology is part of the question because they're not specifically usually mentioning archaeology in the mainstream media. They're mentioning the cultural, um, the cultural implications of this, but it really starts with archaeology because it started with archaeologists that went out there and did a survey wrote up their recommendations, and those recommendations were interpreted and used by another agency, the Army Corps, in making their determinations, and that's where this whole thing exploded, right? So um, that's why I think the top of my list for impactful things that happened in 2016, at least in the United States, um, has got to be Dakota Access Pipeline, because just because of of the, the way that um, it really put that sort of question into non-archaeologists, non-academics heads, you know, really starting to think about these issues, which, which is really important. You know, I don't think it had the, the mainstream media play that it should have, but it at least brought the, the question of, you know, Native American concerns and their land and, and what we do with that um, into the forefront, which leads into some other things we're going to talk about as well. So uh, what, do you, what was your essence of this, April, being in the academic setting when all this was going on? Well, you know, I think it was, I think it was really interesting and important um, in part because one of the things that archaeology struggles to do sometimes is show its contemporary importance and relevance. Mm -hmm. And I think this was a case where it quickly became obvious why archaeology is important to some people mm -hmm. and how if we, if our job isn't done or isn't taken seriously, it can have some serious ramifications. Um, in some ways, it also did a little bit support the narrative that, you know, oh, a silly archaeologist, we just uh, slowed down all these construction projects. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it also showed that people pay attention. People are watching what we do. Um, and the results of our work can be deeply important to different interested groups. Um, and, you know, in terms of academia, I'm not sure if there was, there was a lot at different conferences. Um, it really became kind of a touchstone for like archeological activism mm -hmm. and the fact that we as archeologists can stand up for different groups and with different groups right. and help present their histories using our scientific data, which I think is another thing that at least academics kind of struggle with. We love to write these big cumbersome papers mm -hmm. and publish them in obscure sources um, because that's how we get advancement in our careers. <laughs> but often that information doesn't really help anyone yeah. or advance broader knowledge of the past. And so here is an example of where archaeologists can come forward and talk about our research in a way that really is advancing and impacting really diverse issues like environmental justice which is not some place that we think of archaeology as pivotal, mm -hmm. but it really can be. 
You know, we we yeah. can talk about how humans have impacted and changed the past landscape and the current landscape and what this means um, for the future. So, yeah, yeah, and that was definitely, I think, one of the top archaeological and just nationwide events that mm-hmm. doesn't normally make the top 10 list because it's not a singular action or item. No, you're totally right. Um, and that's, again, and that's that's one of the things we're focusing on in this is what are the things that, that came to national attention that, that didn't, that made everybody's Facebook feeds, you know what I mean? Um, and we've got a break coming up, so I don't know if we want to, uh, we'll probably postpone this for the next break because it's a big topic because... We have to talk about Donald Trump uh, because whether or not you, you realize it, Donald Trump is is going to have a major impact on archaeology for a variety of reasons, um, and that could impact um, definitely cultural resource management archaeology. And I'm betting I'm betting academic in ways that people may not even may not even consider. Um, and I'd like to get April's uh, feedback on that and see what people are talking about down in Arizona where she's at. But um, so we've got a bunch of other things to talk about, some new national monuments some things like that. And we will get into all of that on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we're back. And as I said at the end of the last segment, we're going to talk about Donald Trump, so don't turn off your podcast right now. Um, but uh, let's, again, I, 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 I don't want to focus on this too much because we have talked about this on the CRM Archaeology Podcast. If you're interested, go check out those episodes because we really go in-depth uh, into how it's his presidency will impact CRM archaeology, cultural resource management archaeology, which is really contract archaeology that's mandated by federal laws and state and local laws uh, in this country. And that's really where his impact comes in. Um, Donald Trump, as you know, is a, is a Republican. And Republicans, at least in the last 20, 30 years, have never been huge fans of, of really strong environmental laws and regulations because it impacts... Uh, what it says it impacts what they say is basically progress and development and things like that. Those are their focuses, which there's an argument to be made there. Um, we do impact it, but do we impact it negatively? And that's they they say yes because we impede the progress. But I say no. And really, if you just want to talk numbers, it's no because we don't cost them that much money. You know, even if we find a whole bunch of fantastic things that they have to go excavate for most projects, it's still the cost of doing that is just a drop in the bucket on the overall the overall profit structure. I worked on a project um, years ago that crossed like four states. It was a pipeline. I mean, it was a $3 billion project and the archaeology happened for about three or four years, probably cost, you know, 
even tens of millions of dollars. But when you do that percentage from $3 billion and, and then the revenue they're going to make from the natural gas flowing through there for the next several decades, uh, it's it really is a drop in the bucket. So I don't care how much we cost them um, because the cost – the cost to the world is if we didn't do the surveys that we did, if we didn't do the excavations that we did, we would lose that part of the story that is North America. Um, you know, we would lose whatever, whether it's historic or prehistoric or only 50 years ago or 5,000 years ago, we would simply lose that if people didn't actually go investigate it, write it up, and uh, and put it into some of that obscure literature that, uh, that April was talking about in the first segment. So... Um, so I know, you know, basically the, the way that Donald Trump's going to have the greatest impact is on the laws that we have. They're either going to be changed or they're going to be altered in such a way that, um, maybe it won't be bad. I don't know. I can be optimistic about that, but there's a good chance that it, it will be a negative impact in, from our perspective in that, you know, it might cause more people to get out of the field because there's fewer jobs. And then when something big does happen that we need to do, there won't be as many resources to call upon. Or in the way that developers um, actually have to um, follow the regulations, some changes could happen there. So, April, what's the what's the chatter from the academic community? How do you think, or how do they think, that Donald Trump's presidency will, presidency will impact academic archaeology? So, I think from a standpoint in academia, it's sort of a continuing issue that we've been dealing with that deals the thing. So, how academic archaeological our academic archaeological research is funded, um, and also how universities are structured. Um, you know, the number of full-time teaching positions that really allow for research that exist. Um, and as more and more universities are moving towards, you know, using adjuncts and more temporary professorial positions, you know, there's less opportunity to do adjunct research mm-hmm. um, or do archaeological research. But then also, a lot of the large granting organizations that academic research relies on are receiving less and less federal funding, which, of course, the, this is going to continue to be a problem. And there's just going to be mm-hmm. less and less money to go around and to fund some of the really amazing, interesting research, um, even projects that can really justify why we need them. Um, you know, that's always the thing with archaeology is you go to some of our conferences and you listen to people and you have to wonder, why did we fund this research? Um, and we've gotten a lot better about justifying it, about providing public benefits and public good out of medical research that's coming from academia, which is really important. Um, but, you know, if there's not as much money, some of the coolest projects just can't get funded. And then it becomes a problem, especially for younger professionals, for graduate students who are trying to get into the field and really need some of that funding to go out there and do those initial research projects and learn the skills. Um, So, you know, it's all about money. I think in academia, it's a lot about money. And then some concerns about things like suppression of speech um, Mm -hmm. that are always kind of in academia, you know, our, our liberal dialogues sometimes aren't always welcomed. So, yeah. One of the, one of the big things I was wondering about, uh, you know, academic archaeology in general um, as well is is really the, and I think you kind of got into this a little bit, April, but really is the university setting. Um, because a lot of th- effects we might think that, that, a, that a Republican presidency could have 
is on just the educational system in general. You know, what about um, admission costs and what about, you know, the, the, the types of people that get admitted, you know, admission regulations, if, if universities are going to be under scrutiny for their funding, um, you know, how is how is a Republican controlled Congress, Senate, presidency, even uh, Supreme Court, how is it going to have some some long lasting effects on that kind of stuff? Because these guys can enact whatever laws they want. And then they might be in, in effect for a long time. It's not just this term of the presidency that we have to worry about. It's what it's what happens during that 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 follows on that that sticks with us for a while uh, that we can't get rid of. So, um, and and also maybe you can speak to um, the fact that as a as a scientist and as a researcher, not all of the research that people do um, will actually have. Uh, I don't know how to phrase it. Phrase it so the public can can really get it positive results, which means there were results because yeah. a lot of research has actually no results at all or negative results or, Hey, I just spent $200,000 to find out the answer to my question is no, there are no effects, <laughs> you know, or, or you went and you got all this funding to go do this dig somewhere and turns out there was nothing there. Right. You know, all the initial research was, was wrong and there was nothing there, but we still funded it. Well, and that's actually something for a lot of science pro- research. It's really interesting because you don't see negative results published because they're mm-hmm. just on the surface. They're not that interesting, but they're actually really, really interesting because they tell us what hypotheses are true and false. And they also help guide the next step. So mm-hmm. if we don't do research that sometimes just doesn't work, then the next research project can't go and look at this past project and say, hey, you know what, this is what they tried and it wasn't successful. So here are the potential causes or the potential questions that they have eliminated. And now we can take another step and we can ask these ones in a new way or questions that they didn't ask. And so it's really hard in science to get those kinds of negative results published. They talk about a lot, especially in medicine and medical studies. Um, but they're really, really important. But yeah, when you turn in your funding, you know, your final reports and you've been given all this money and you basically say, well, really didn't work. Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard. (laughs) It's hard to get more money. Um, it's hard to justify why the study was worth it, but they really are. I mean, science is about asking and answering questions. And, you know, it's just like every time you ask your mom or dad a question, you could get a yes or no answer. And you just don't know what it's going to be. And you're kind of gambling. But you you have some assumptions about what the most likely answer is going to be. Um, and, you know, that's that's what we're doing. As for kind of larger university structure, I think some of it's going to vary school to school based on what their funding and revenue streams are coming from. You know, do they have a big private endowment? Mm-hmm. Or are they schools that rely on a lot of federal and state funding, which has been, you know, in the last, I think it's like 30 years, it's something pretty decent has been steadily decreasing. Right. Um, and more and more since things like 2008, when the economy just took such a blow. Um, and, you know, it, it does change things, like how much of a financial burden schools are forced to put on students. Um, the more funding we get from other sources, the less money schools have to ask from their own students Mm -hmm. and the less they have to kind of put pressure on faculty to compete for grants or find their own funding for research in exchange for, uh, you know, just having grants internally that Mm -hmm. students and faculty can use to fund their research. But, you know, it's hard to know 
because it varies so much from state to state and institution to institution, it's, I think it's potentially challenging, at least for me, with my knowledge base, <laughs> to come up with some ideas of kind of overarching things. I know one of the big concerns is, you know, things like the dreamers. Mm-hmm. What are schools going to do with students who have come forward, who have enrolled, um, but aren't necessarily legal citizens? Right. Um, how do schools react to potential changes about laws surrounding them? Right. Um, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily affect archaeological research, but it affects it affects the student body. I think that's one of the things that I've seen is just a lot of concern in universities about reassuring the student body uh-huh. um, that there aren't going to be huge changes and that everybody is still welcome in these institutions <laughs> and that they won't, you know, tolerate kind of acts of hate or discrimination within university and academic settings. I think that's been the biggest response that I've seen coming out of academia. Okay. Yeah. And those are, man, those are such incredible um, possible effects that could happen, you know, that that we maybe didn't even think about. Um, You know, a thing on the funding too, it's, uh, it's always seems, it always seems from people who haven't gone through grad school, whether it's a master's degree or, uh, or a PhD, that when somebody says they're, you know, they're fully funded, they're this, it's, it always seems very um, elitist to people, I think. They're like, oh, you, you know, were, were smart enough or came from the right neighborhood or had the right family or had the right connections or whatever, you know, to get your grad school fully funded. But there's a, there's a really important reason for that in archaeology, um, which is when you get out of that program, it doesn't matter where you go. Unless you're going to be, you know, a movie star or something like that, the first archaeologist movie star, you're probably not going to make a ton of money. And it's going to be really difficult to pay back those student loans. And if you can get funding for that stuff, then you can continue to do your research when you get out of school rather than what happens a lot in cultural resource management archaeology. People will go back for typically just a master's degree. A PhD is not usually required for anything that we do yet anyway. Um, There would be PhD field techs in 10 years. I have no doubt about that. But Right now, uh, a master's degree is typically what people go get, and then they find out that while this wasn't the the the, the panacea of jobs that I thought it was going to be, and I'm not <laughs> making you know eighty dollars an hour doing my job, um, I just uh, I just went thirty five thousand dollars in debt so I can make an extra dollar an hour and have twice as much responsibility, and that's usually what people find, and then they're trying to make these student loan payments. And the only way they can do it is to actually leave archaeology and go get, quote unquote, a real job. And, uh, and they're like, well, when I pay off the student loan, I'll come back, you know, and, and that just simply never happens. So um, I think funding is an incredibly, incredibly important thing to do. Um, and I, I kind of wish I'd done that. I, I chose the uh, I chose to get a degree a little bit quicker and not do any of the funding and not do any of the teaching that goes along with that a lot of times and get out quicker so I could get into the workforce. But now I have a, an extra $300 a month student loan payment for the next 20 years of my life. So, yeah. you know. And and I think in some ways, um, for archaeology at a PhD level, it becomes almost an equalizer mm-hmm. because you don't have to have money to go to graduate school. You have to have ideas. Right. Um, and so I think that's just as important. Yeah. Um, being able to justify, like, okay, well, my family's not rich and my family's no background in this, but I have really interesting ideas and I have skills that will help archaeology advance as a professional field. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, now that we've talked about Donald Trump for an entire segment. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, uh. I think what we do have some other important things to talk about, which we can possibly move to the third segment, because one of the one of the regulatory things I think we should just mention before we move on from this, um, which is because it's somewhat related to Donald Trump because he may destroy it, is the National <laughs> Historic Preservation Act, um, and then uh, and then one other as well, but. The, the NHPA is the thing that defines cultural resource management, archaeology, uh, and cultural resource management in general, not just the archaeological, archaeological aspect of it. But um, that, 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 that act, that law, was enacted in 1966. Uh, in fact, I think it was November, maybe even December. I can't remember what the actual day was. But it was just recently, and we hit 50 years of having that rule. So um, the general 50-year rule that we have for actually recording um, artifacts that, that we uh, we all typically follow, we can now actually record the National Historic Preservation Act, which because uh, it's 50 years old now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a real meta thing to think about. But uh, it also brings into uh, it brings into sharp focus these laws and, and the impact they do have on us because, I mean, is it time to change it? It's 50 years old. Do we live in the same world we did 50 years ago? Um, some people are really afraid to change that because they're afraid that change will be negative. Um, but I think that change can actually be positive and reflect, reflect the world that we live in now. I mean, my biggest fear is that the, the Republican administration is going to change it to, to be negative, to, to be less impactful than it is now. Um, but then other people would disagree, like, uh, Tom King would disagree. And he would say that he would say that we need to tear it down entirely. And he has said that. And uh, and put something else new in its place. He's not saying we don't have to have anything, but it's it's so ineffective that we need to have something else in its place. And I don't know. There's people on other ends of the spectrum, but I just had to throw that in there because it was uh, an important anniversary that we had this year, and it makes us think about um, makes us think about where we are and where we've been and and where we need to go. So. And there's another really important anniversary that's indirectly att- attached to archaeology, but you know, it was a national park's hundred years. Yeah. Um, and the national parks are one of the amazing ways of not only preserving some of the country's archaeological resources, but also really opening them to the public. And, you know, the best part about this year was all these national parks had free days, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a cheap archaeologist, I really enjoy. I like not paying to visit national parks, but getting to see them like a lot of different um, members of our country and citizens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think our national parks celebrating a hundred years. That's a huge monumental achievement um, that we've had national parks for that long and that we've managed to keep them funded and popular and, you know, constantly visited. They're mm-hmm. huge attractions, both within our country and outside of it. And, you know, a way that a lot of Americans are first introduced to archaeology is through the national parks. Exactly. So, you know, that leads us into a perfect break moment and uh, the topic of some new monuments that we can come back to when we get done with our break. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Well, welcome back to the Archaeology Show. So we left off and we were about to talk about all the national monuments that have been created this year. So this year alone, there have been nine new national monuments. Hmm. Um, and I mean, that that's huge. Yeah. Not all of them are archaeological. I'll, I'll admit that. Um, a couple of them have huge historical significance, like Stonewall in Manhattan. Um, and others are just preserved for their natural beauty. But at least the two most recent ones are in the Southwest, and one of them is near and dear to my own heart. So I'm sure everyone saw in the past couple of days on Facebook all of the announcements popping up about the Bears Ears in Utah and Gold Butte in Nevada. And these are both huge archaeological, huge sites of archaeological significance. I mean, Gold Butte is near the end of the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you know anything about the archaeology of the Grand Canyon, you know, there's spectacular rock art and there's amazing Native American culture that spans thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a really important area for us to be preserving. And then the Bears Ears in Utah... Um, First, 1.35 million acres. So <laughs> it's, it's just absolutely enormous. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that makes this national monument really interesting, and I think partially archaeologically significant, is that a bunch of different tribal groups, Native American tribes, worked to help define the area that they wanted designated and preserved because of its um, sacred and religious significance and cultural significance. And if you've ever been to this area, it is just spectacularly beautiful. And the prehistoric sites there are amazing. Um, And so to have it protected is, you know, it's a huge boon for the American people in general, but also, you know, the Hopi, Navajo, the Ute and Ute Mountain Tribe, and the Zuni, who all worked to help get this area preserved and protected. And of course, you know, a lot of the local residents and archaeologists in the area. Um, But I'll admit this place is hugely dear to my heart. So (laughs) my parents honeymooned in Cedar Mesa, which is part of this designation. And then when I moved to the Southwest with my non-archaeologist husband, I took him to what I thought were the best spots for introducing a non-archaeologist to Southwestern (laughs) archaeology. And this fell under it. Um, So we also honeymooned there. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I believe that that adds to its archaeological and cultural significance greatly. Um, but you know, it really says something that president Obama has created a bunch of new national monuments, um, over the course of his presidency, I think it's something like 22 monuments, Hmm. um, and preserved a lot of land, um, you know, from new, at least new drilling and extraction practices. Um, you know, and it varies from region to region, but, you know, public land is something again, that's kind of contested because, how does it impact industry and local economies? Is it positive? Mm -hmm. Is it negative? But, you know, at least from an archeological standpoint, being able to set aside some of these areas of significance for either their cultural or natural resources, I think is kind of an amazing thing to get to celebrate uh, at the end of 2016, that we ended the year with two really amazing new national monuments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's really good too, that, that he did, you know, a lot of these in, in 2016 here, because, um, 
You know, historically, Republican presidencies, not to go back to Trump too much, but, and this really isn't a Trump thing. It's really just kind of the Republican mindset is it seems like fewer national monuments and national parks are designated during those presidencies than in than in democratic ones it's just statistics that's just how it goes so it's nice that obama took this opportunity to um you know to finalize these ones in the last month uh last 30 days of his presidency well and what's interesting about some of the ones that he has designated too is living in the west like chris and i do you know we know that there's tons and tons of public land mm-hmm. um but a couple of the new monuments are on the East Coast. Yeah. And, you know, areas, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and there's a lot less kind of public land available to people to go and explore and hike and enjoy nature. And so I think getting a couple of new monuments in areas that don't have kind of the sheer quantity um, that right. we in the West enjoy is really exciting. Well, and, and some people might be wondering that since this is a general archaeology show and I, I'm hoping to appeal to wider audiences, some people might be wondering why are there so many massive monuments and national parks in the West? And the real simple answer to that is environment. Um, it's not like, I mean, you could make the entire country a massive national monument if you wanted to, because Native Americans have been in in every every section of land, every small you know bit of area. I mean, they've been here for documented at least 14,000 years and more likely um I personally think it's probably closer to 20 in some in some areas and uh 20,000 years and that's that's such an incredibly long period of time and they've had a chance to explore every section I mean I'll never forget the the hundreds of times we've been out surveying in Nevada and you you just haven't found anything in a while or whatever and you you find yourself on this hilltop in a completely isolated area not a road in sight not a planes aren't even flying overhead. It's such a desolate area. And you just all of a sudden there's a, there's a flake or better yet a projectile point or arrowhead sitting there on the ground. And you're like, you're thinking, man, nobody's ever been. Here. Oh, wait there. Somebody's already been here. <laughs> you're, you're simply not the first. The difference between the West and the East coast is the East coast has things like forests and hurricanes and other weather. And it tends to destroy or bury the archeology span there. So you know, we tend to see more historic monuments out there because that stuff was built in the last 400 years and is still there. But the stuff that the Native Americans built, um, you only see that when it's monumental, like Cahokia in, in Missouri and, um, and, and you know, with the, the other mound sites in the mound areas of Ohio and, and south of there as well. So you see those, those are preserved, but they're material culture like you have here in the West Coast where you just have whole areas where it's just projectile points and arrowheads and, you know, lithic remains and, and even pottery and things like that. They just, they, they persist for thousands of years and, you know, untouched. And that's kind of amazing. And that's why preserving these massive landscapes is such an important idea because we can not only preserve the artifacts, but the settings in which they were left when they were last used. So... Well, and I think it also comes down to a also a history of size and kind of settlement patterns. Mm-hmm. So when we started making national monuments and the national forests and parks, a lot of the East Coast and Midwest was already owned and settled, mm-hmm. but the West was still really open. You know, it was an area of expansion. It was a frontier. Um, and, you know, the government saw the opportunity. You know, the land was there and it was more, it was easier to do it. in part i mean chris and i were just talking about how we've both lived out here for a while and how impossible it sometimes is to (laughs) see all the national parks you know 
I was harassing Chris about some of the ones <laughs> there in Nevada. And he's like, well, they're, they're six, seven hours drive away. They're hard to get to. Yeah. Oh yeah. We kind of forget <laughs> about the sheer scale differences between the East and West coast. Like as you move across our country, the size of these States just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The, the gold butte one, the new one, which is like you said, at the edge of the grand Canyon. I mean, that's the far Southern tip of Nevada. And if I was to drive without weather and without serious traffic, it's six hours from Reno just to Las Vegas. And, and you're talking about this monument is, is a good hour South of Vegas. I think, um, I've actually never driven that direction. I've gone around there, but I mean, it's a ways away. And then the only other national park in Nevada is Great Basin National Park near Ely, Nevada. I mean, even Ely is like a six-hour drive from here. And then your Great Basin National Park is, is even farther south, I think south, of Ely. And uh, it's either south or north of Ely, Nevada. Either way, it's, um, it's, it's really difficult to get to. And a lot of the park is closed in the wintertime because, it's, uh, um, because of snow. So just access, getting around there. So, um, but it's a, it's a really, it's a great place that I want to go visit sometime. There's a lot of caves out there. Um, the oldest, I believe that's where the oldest tree, um, the oldest tree in the world, possibly definitely in the United States is, um, what do they call that? It's one of those, uh, one of those old junipers that is just, you know, 10,000 years old or some crazy thing. It's in that park. So, you know, a lot of fantastic things to see and it's good to see new, new preservation, happening um because that's that's a hard thing to take away once it is once it is made you know i don't i don't even know that that's ever happened that a national park or national monument was undesignated i'm not sure that's even a concept that we have i don't know know. i'm I'm sure we can find out uh (laughs) yeah somebody let us know in the comments or, or in an email so um yeah but you know, possibly uh, moving on in the last uh, nine or so minutes here of the show, um, you know, and I'll, I'll throw this over to April because uh, you've got down in our notes here new developments in human evolution and genome genome studies, and you happen to be at one of the premier schools for um, human evolution and uh, and and just all the new discoveries that happen. I mean, the University of Arizona is. Uh, Wait, University of Arizona? Arizona State. Oh, yeah, always, Arizona, Arizona State. State. Damn it, I always mess that up. Yeah, anyway. sorry. Don't, <laughs> yeah, but don't do that one. ASU, <laughs> that's right, ASU. So Arizona State University in, in Tempe is just, you know, is is really one of the big centers for human evolution studies. So um, maybe you can speak to that a little bit and some stuff that you know that's come out this year um, related to those studies. Oh, man, you're just putting me on the spot here. <laughs> uh, now my colleagues are going to listen in. That's no, right. I was just trying to think, too, about you know, what are, what are some of the kind of new developments and exciting things that are happening in archaeology? Um, and I was looking at, you know, all the different publications that have come out over the years over the year and different articles and things that were popping up in newspapers that the public would under know about too. And I realized that I think one of the challenges of making this kind of top 10 or 20 list is that a lot of these things are continuing research. Archaeology, mm-hmm. you know, there are these great moments where we have sort of huge finds uh, that really help us change and understand the dialogues. You know, there's that exciting burned Bronze Age village, um, which all of a sudden is this microcosm. It's a village in England that they found that was lived in the Bronze Age and was burned. Mm-hmm. And amazing remains of daily life and daily activities were preserved. So we get these one-off snapshot archaeological sites that 
you know, you can really list as something amazing and fascinating, a cool new discovery. But when you start looking, a lot of the discoveries in archaeology are actually building on existing research. Right. Um, they're not new. We're using new technologies to look at things that we've already been studying. Um, and we're continuing to ask the same kinds of questions. But, you know, technology changes. And I think that's the one thing that you notice is as these technologies change, we get to ask more and more exciting questions and we get to find new answers to questions we've already been asking. Mm -hmm. um, and so I know that this year a lot of articles were popping up on human evolution and different genome studies. Um, Arizona State, of course, has Lucy, is involved in research on Lucy. <laughs> yep. And there was a bunch of articles about whether she fell or was pushed. Oh. Um, God, how could they I'm, prove that? I'm abstaining from these. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, so that was an interesting line of research, quite controversial, you know, a lot of opinions on that. But yes, how exactly do you concretely prove, mm -hmm. um, you know, what happened to Lucy? Yeah. But, you know, I think what a lot of this research is showing is the amazing complexity of humanity. Um, you know, we're not sort of either isolated different groups and genetic pools um, instead, it's this really complex, intergenetically woven web mm -hmm. of different human ancestor groups um, and then different near relatives. You know, they're not <clears throat> groups like the Neanderthals, which aren't, you know, kind of modern humans um, and are a slightly different branch of the evolutionary tree. But it looks like, you know, we're genetically commingled with them to a mm -hmm. certain extent and that they're these really complex and interesting genetic legacies that bind modern humans together across all these different continental divides, but at the same time also make us subtly different yeah. um, and potentially make us adapted to the environments that we're living in. Um, so I don't know. I just find that research really interesting and the fact that every year we're able to do a little bit more with it. Um, there are these kind of constant new advances. And I think to me, that's the magic of archaeology mm -hmm. is we're not answering an answerable question. We're kind of constantly unraveling a really complicated puzzle and trying to move our understanding of the world we live in and who we are a little bit further step by step. Um, so. Yeah. Well, and I got to go back real quick to the, to the whether Lucy was pushed or <laughs> fell argument because, um, and it's for anybody that doesn't know, Lucy is, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. She's Australopithecus afarensis found in Ethiopia, far Valley in Ethiopia and uh or the afar region and i think she's what dated to what 3.2 million years or something like that um but either way it sounds like the internal review board at asu really needs to um watch those studies because it sounds like it's a good case for um you know having grad students get either pushed or dropped or fallen to uh <laughs> to you know to figure out, oh, what does this look like uh, on your on your bones and your osteology when you're when you're pushed into the ground, <laughs> so we can study Lucy's bones? Because I remember seeing like walking studies, you know, like the like totally footprints and stuff like that. They would walk carrying different things mm -hmm. to see, well, what what can we learn from these footprints? Well, if you're trying to figure out whether somebody was pushed, you have to push a bunch of people to figure that out. So, well, if I start <laughs> noticing my cohort disappearing, we'll report on it here first. Right. Uh. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we just got a couple minutes left. Uh, I just want to say if anybody um, listening to this has was really 
personally or or just emotionally impacted by some sort of discovery they heard about that really that really stuck with them this year um, or some sort of thing, you know, that's related to archaeology, you know, anywhere like we talked about from election results or, you know, local results and things like that that will impact archaeology. Let us know in the comments to this episode, whether you heard it on Facebook, um, where you saw it on Twitter or on our website at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And, uh, and also feel free to send an email, and I will make sure April sees this as well through um, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So any final thoughts closing out uh, 2016, April? Do you think, we, uh, do you think we'll, we'll all have jobs in education in 2017, or is this it? <laughs> I, I hope it's not it. Um, I think, you know, I, I think archaeology is really flexible, Mm-hmm. And I think it's it'll all work out in the end. I mean, <laughs> plus we have a whole new year of amazing discoveries and coming out of the research that we're already doing. So I think that alone gives us something to really look forward to. You know, right. there's new research that people have been doing for the past couple of years that finally is going to get published on. And there's new discoveries that are going to be made by accident and new questions that we're going to be asking and potentially answering. So you know, at least with archaeology, there's always something to look forward to. Yeah, well, April's the uh, optimist here, and I tend to be the pessimist sometimes. So I will say that if you see a whole bunch of artifacts suddenly appear on eBay, you'll know that uh, times are rough. <laughs> <laughs> when we start, when we start just running through the collections and and, and putting up new listings. So I don't. That's not going to happen. E- even in the toughest times, I don't think ethically archaeologists would ever sell their artifact collections. But you never know. So I guess with that uh, optimistic and then pessimistic note, we'll close out the, uh, the new archaeology show uh, podcast for 2016. And we've already got a great episode recorded to kick off 2017. So look forward to that. And um, we've got a lot more great stuff coming. So April, thanks a lot. Um, and uh, everybody have a happy new year. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We forgot the biggest event of 2016, the creation of our podcast. Oh my God, that's (laughs) monumental. (laughs) Nice, nice.
Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 